for our sermon text this morning. Uh, we'll again be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the true and living God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will be with us this morning, Lord, in a powerful way that you'll stir your spirit up uh, Father, through your word and through the preaching of your word, uh, that I will speak your truth boldly and clearly, and that by your spirit, you'll apply it to the hearts of your people, that it will be a, a help to them, Lord, in their walk, and that they might uh, live in accordance with the truth that you've given us here. Lord, I pray that you'll guard my lips from speaking falsehood. Uh, and Father, just proclaim your truth this morning, that we might all grab hold of it, cling to it. Lord, love it, adore it, and draw closer to you through it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, this morning, we turn our attention back to our study in the book of Colossians. And we've been working our way through uh, this the greeting portion of Paul's letter, this introduction here. And we focused uh, the last three weeks on the different elements of this greeting. And we're going to pick up today at the second half of Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, and this half of the verse uh, completes the typical greeting formula. You know, we've been talking about how Paul is sort of following this, this formula that, uh, that um, the Greeks at this time sort of used as a common way of writing their letters. And he's just sort of taking it and making it his own. Um, and we've seen uh, in, in, in this introduction that these letters always begin with, and Paul's letters always begin with a from to kind of format, right? Uh, um, in this case, it's from Paul the Apostle and Timothy to the saints and faithful brethren at Colossae. And the remaining part of this greeting, this traditional Greek formula, uh, usually consisted of an expression of well-wishing. Right, so you'd have the from to, and then you'd have some sort of expression of, you know, I hope you're doing well. Um, and, and Paul always has his own way of wishing the recipients of his letters well, and he uses some variation of this uh, in all of his epistles in the New Testament, in every single one. So um, I'd like to begin by discussing this this favorite greeting of Paul's, and then uh, when we finish up verse two, I'm going to continue on from there. And I'm going to try to work through verses three and four. So we'll be covering a little bit more ground today than we have been. So Colossians chapter one, uh, the portion of this verse we'll be looking at is grace to you and peace from God, our father. Grace to you and peace from God, our father. This is Paul's preferred way of opening his letters. Right again, he uses this phrase or some variation of it in every single one of his New Testament epistles. Uh, and I want to remark on something here, just briefly before we actually dig into the text. 
Uh, as, as I said, this is part of a formula, um, of like a, 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 a common way of, of beginning these letters. Um, and it's a formula that Paul always uses. It, it was his go-to. Uh, so if we were to write a letter, or uh, more, more commonly, uh, it's modern equivalent, right? The email. Uh, we might begin with something like, I hope all is well with you. Hope, I, I hope everything's going well with you. Or something similar. And I think a lot of times we do this uh, in our greetings without actually taking the time to really consciously think about what our, our actual hopes are for the person or people that we're writing to. And what I mean when I say that, what I mean when I say that is we, we have common greetings and, and phrases that are kind of like our go-tos as well, right? Whether we're writing a letter um, or, or speaking to a person, just like Paul had his go-tos, just like the Greeks whose traditional letter writing formula Paul was following. And because these greetings are so common, so commonly used, it's easy to say these things without really meaning them. Right? They're, they're just sort of like the thing that we're supposed to say. I don't necessarily mean that uh, if we write in a letter, you know, I hope all is well with you, that we're not actually probably somewhere in our hearts. We really are hoping. Right? Hopefully none of us would ever uh, say or, or think or write to anyone that we don't hope they're doing well. Right? But I, I wonder if when we say things like this, and, and same for verbal greetings like how are you, how are you doing, and things like that. Um, I wonder if when we say these things, do we say them with genuine thoughtfulness and with a, a conscious and sincere hope that our greeting finds them truly well? Or are we conscientious in our concern for others? When we say, how are you doing? Is, that, is there a part of us that is really, really wondering how someone is doing and hoping that they're doing well? Now, do we genuinely feel a real hope for them? And I'm afraid uh, that oftentimes we don't. You know, oftentimes we're just saying what people say. And I know I'm guilty of this. I, I'm guilty I don't always think much about these things when I say them or when I write them. Um, well, the point that I'm making, the Apostle Paul didn't have that problem. Uh, he truly felt this hope. He offered his blessings and prayers out of a genuine, sincere, and passionate concern for his readers. All you have to do is read his letters. All you have to do is read his letters and seek to truly get a sense of what the man must have been thinking and feeling when he wrote them. And you'll recognize that Paul cared deeply, deeply for those to whom he communicated. Right? It just it, it, it drips from his pen. Um, this is the man who said that he would give up his own place in Christ. He would give up his own salvation if by doing so he could guarantee the salvation of his fellow Jews. And we, we read a famous scripture uh, a few Sundays ago where Paul is recounting all of the trials and tribulations that he endured in his calling as an apostle. Uh, he talked about beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks. And he gives this big, long list of all these troubles and these dangers that, that have caused him suffering. And then he concludes this list uh, by noting that on top, of all of these severe physical trials, he feels the constant internal pressure of his concern for all the churches. Right? He says, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? To Paul, this was on par with getting beaten. To Paul, this was on par with being in danger of wild beasts. And imprisonment was the, 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 the concern that he felt for the churches, the, the dread that he felt in, 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 in thinking or knowing that these people might be falling into sin or might be being misled. He was, he was, he was tortured by it. And so he, he speaks in this very letter, in the letter to the Colossians, of his great concern for these saints in Colossae and elsewhere. Right? These are saints, that people that he never even met. And he says, 
uh, I have a great struggle for you. And this word that he uses here can also mean I have a great anxiety, a great concern for your spiritual well-being. And Paul's not just saying this. Paul, he meant it. He meant it. That's why he's writing to them. And he means it here uh, in this verse. When Paul prays for grace and peace from the Father upon his brethren here, he genuinely, deeply desires these things for them. And we know this because he spends the rest of the letter, as he does in all of his letters, encouraging and imparting this grace and peace from the Father. He preaches it and reassures the people of God's ability and eagerness to grant these things to them. Right? He reminds them of all of the ways that God has already blessed them with grace and peace. And then he points them to the source, always pointing them to the source, to the only reason that anyone can actually have this grace and peace from the Father. Right? He points them to Christ. <clears throat> and I pray, I pray, brothers and sisters, that we might share this, this genuine concern for the people that God has placed in our lives, right? Concern for our Christian brethren and for our lost loved ones, and that we, we might pray God's blessings upon them and point them to the truth of Christ and that the Spirit would be at work in us so that we might do these things as Paul did them, right? Conscientiously, with, with sincere hearts and a genuine, deep desire to see people blessed. I'll move on into the text now. And um, what I want to do here, I want us to look first at the, at the three major elements in this phrase, in this last half of verse two. All right, three major elements. There's grace, and then there's peace. And then I want to look at from God, our Father. And I want, I want to examine these three elements individually to start out. And then I want to put it all together so that we can see the full meaning in this phrase and see Paul's intention in using it. So, uh, appropriately, we will begin with grace. With grace. I say appropriately because everything begins with grace. All right, when Paul prays for this blessing of grace upon the Colossian believers, and it is a prayer, this is a prayer, right? It, it has to be. It has to be because Paul himself can't bestow the kind of grace that he's talking about here on anyone, right? It's not his to give. He makes that clear here by saying that this grace and peace comes from the Father. And he's invoking the Father because the Father is the only one who can bestow this grace, right? So it's a prayer of Paul for these saints at Colossae. And in this prayer for grace, he's asking God for several things, right? When, and asking God for grace on behalf of these Colossians, he's actually, he's asking for several different things. Grace is a huge concept. Grace is a huge concept. It's a reference to the love and the power and the purpose of God in the lives of all people. And it's manifested in all sorts of different ways. Grace shows up in all sorts of different ways. <clears throat> and so I think, uh, I think we can break this down into three major categories. Right? We can break grace down into three major categories. Uh, and, and, and these are, I'm going to call them common grace, saving grace, and sanctifying grace. Common grace, saving grace, and sanctifying grace. Now, these aren't necessarily uh, strict theological categories, all right? This is just a way of breaking the concept down um, that I hope will be helpful to us in our thinking and meditating on the nature of grace. So take it as you will and use it as it works for you. Um, this grace of God, this grace of God that Paul is asking for on behalf of these Colossians manifests itself first as what we might call a common grace. So when Paul is talking about grace, uh, one of the things that he has in mind is what we could call a common grace. And this is the grace that God freely and lovingly bestows on all people, 
on the entire world. Psalm 40, uh, 145, verse 9, Psalm 145, verse 9. It says that the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. The Lord is good to all. Did you eat yesterday? I did. I ate good yesterday. That's grace. Uh, did you sleep last night? Did you wake up this morning? Did you just take a breath? Are you taking one now? None of those things happen apart from the grace of God. None of those things. It's only by His grace that we exist at all. He didn't have to create us. He didn't have to create anything. And even after creating, He doesn't have to sustain anything that He created like He does. He does these things because He wants to, not because He's obligated. By His grace, He gave us life. And He gave us the capacity to be able to enjoy life. Uh, sunsets and rainbows and music and romance and food and fellowship. These are all gifts of God's grace. Every one of them. And this is an aspect of grace, a kind of grace that He gives to all people, all people everywhere. Uh, this is how God loves even unbelievers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. Uh, Jesus tells the people that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. These are blessings that all people, all people are able to enjoy, whether they acknowledge the source of these blessings or not, or whether they're even, even thankful or not. God is still gracious to allow them to enjoy these blessings, every human being. And again, he's not obligated to give this grace. As a matter of fact, that's actually, that's the very definition of grace, right? In all of its forms, grace is when God gives gifts to undeserving people. That's what grace is. Uh, this made clear in Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. A remnant is a portion that has been uh, reserved out of a larger group. And now look here. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So if it's on the basis of works, it's not grace. If it's given on the basis of our works, it's simply what is owed to us, right? It becomes something that's given to us because we earned it by our works. The giver is then obligated to give us what is due to us, what we've earned. So the point of grace is we can't earn grace. We can't earn it. If we, and we have no right to demand it of God either. We're not entitled to God's favor just because we exist. All good gifts come down from the Father of lights. And none of us, none of us, not a single one of us deserves any of it. As a matter of fact, he would be just in withholding these things from us. He wouldn't be violating any principle of justice if he chose not to give us grace at all. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He gives us grace out of love. He does it because it's his very nature to be gracious. That's who he is. So he makes all of humanity the recipients of this common grace. We, we can call it common grace because it's the grace of God that is common to all people. But the next category, the next category of grace we'll talk about is the beginning of God's special grace, right? Which he pours out only 
upon his elect people. And that's what we might call his saving grace. Saving grace. Saving grace is the favor that he has shown to undeserving sinners, right? To those who are by nature his enemies and children of wrath. By his grace, he's chosen a people for himself in Christ Jesus, by his grace. And he saved us from wrath, right? And he's justified us according to his law. Um, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Right? This is the ultimate expression of God's grace upon sinners. Not only has he created and sustained physical life in these Colossian believers and in us, but he's graciously blessed us with eternal life and his son as well. He's gone one step beyond. Uh, and it's not because of our works. It's not because we deserve it. It's because he's gracious. So in this letter, in this letter to the Colossians, Paul is, uh, in a way, he's, he's proclaiming and reminding his readers of the grace that has already been given to them. In Christ, they're already chosen and called and set apart as holy, uh, set apart as saints. But Paul's prayer here for the Colossians is that God would continue to bestow his grace upon them as well. It's to remind them uh, of the grace that he's already shown them in salvation. But it's also, it's a, it's a prayer that they would continue in this grace. <clears throat> um, and we'll see this borne out throughout the rest of this letter. Uh, Paul reminds these saints of who they are in Christ, and he encourages them and prays that they'll continue to grow in Christ in knowledge and wisdom and power. And so this brings us to the third and final aspect of grace that we'll look at here, which is God's sanctifying grace. We've looked at uh, common grace, saving grace, and now we look at sanctifying grace. And I actually, I debated against using this term uh, because it is a term that uh, Roman Catholics use as well. And they infuse some of their own uh, false theology into their definition of it. Uh, but the term works. The term works, and I like it. And I don't want to let Rome have it. So I'm going to adopt it uh, for our purposes here. Right, sanctifying grace. Um, if you remember from last week, we talked about it. To be sanctified is to be set apart for God set apart for God for the purpose of serving him. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be made holy. Um, <clears throat> and we talked about holiness and about how there's a sense in which because we're chosen by God for salvation, we've already been sanctified, right? We've already been set apart or made holy in Christ, but we're also charged to live in a way that is consistent with this calling. Again, you've been made holy, now act holy. Uh, you're saints, now act like saints. So sanctification is both, it's the state of being in Christ, having been saved, but it's also, it's the process of being made like Christ. Um, there's a, a twofold aspect of sanctification. It happens as soon as we believe we're sanctified. But we're also, we got to continue in sanctification. Um, but it's only, only by the grace of God that we can grow in this manner. Right? We don't sanctify ourselves. Uh, we're called to be faithful. But apart from God's grace, we don't even know what faithfulness is. If he's not gracious to reveal that to us. And we're completely powerless to walk in it on our own. Right? Who, who leads us? Who equips us? Who gives us wisdom and discernment so that we might know what the will of God is? Who gives us the power to walk in the will of God? Who gives us everything that we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Who does these things? He does it. God does it. By His grace. 
We, we, don't, we don't have these things in ourselves. These are gifts of God. If we're to accomplish any good thing in service to Christ, any good thing, it can only be done by His grace. It's the only way. And we, and we can see this concept spelled out plainly in many passages of Scripture, but Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 uh, might say it best. It says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It is God who equips us to do his will. It is God who works in us that we might be and do what is pleasing in his sight. We can only serve him properly as he gives us grace to do so. That's it. And he promises, he promises to give it. He's going to do it. This is why there's no such thing. There is no such thing as someone who is saved by faith in Christ but shows no desire to do the work of Christ or to obey Christ. There is no one, no one who has received saving grace who does not also receive sanctifying grace. This is what James means when he tells us uh, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Any claim to faith that isn't accompanied by good works of service to God, any uh, any claim to faith that does not lead to a changed life and to bearing fruit is no faith at all. It's a dead faith. No faith. So, in praying for the Father's grace upon these Colossian saints, Paul is praying that God would bless them with an increasing faithfulness and that they would increase in knowledge and strength and good works. Right In short, He's praying that they would be conformed into the image of Christ. That's the Christian life. That's what sanctification is all about. That's the ultimate goal of what God is doing in every single one of us, in every single believer. He is conforming us more to the image of Christ, making us more like his son until the time when we see him face to face. And it says, when we see him, we will be like him. We will be made like him. That's the goal. That's who we are. That's what God's doing. Um, all right, now I want to add something here. There is another aspect of grace, uh, another little part of grace that I thought about adding as, as a fourth category. Um, but I think it's better to think of it as like a subcategory, okay? So uh, it's not really like a distinct form of grace that stands on its own, like I kind of see these other three as being. But, but it sort of flows through the categories here, um, the categories of saving and sanctifying grace. It's dependent on both of them. And this subcategory, if you will, uh, the subcategory is preserving grace. God's preserving grace. Preserving grace is the work of God in keeping his people in Christ for all eternity. Right? Is keeping us in Christ. And he does this uh, through, through both his saving grace and his sanctifying grace. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that. In saving us and calling us to himself, in covering us by the blood sacrifice of his son, and justifying us in his sight, and saving us from his wrath. And doing all of these things, God also seals us. He seals us for eternity. He makes us his in a way that can never be reversed. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Bear this out. In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, having believed the gospel, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance 
with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This word pledge here, this word pledge, it means a guarantee. But beyond that, the Greek word literally means a down payment. It literally is referring, it's the term used to refer to money that a person would give someone else to hold something for them as assurance that they were going to make the rest of the payment. That's what God's Holy Spirit is in his people. Um, he gives his spirit as a pledge to those that believe the gospel that they are guaranteed, guaranteed an inheritance with Christ in eternity. What is a guarantee from God worth? Any chance he's going to go back on that? So it's part of his preserving grace that he seals us at salvation. It's done. Uh, and his preservation of his people is also connected to his sanctifying grace. Right? Because to receive our inheritance, to receive the prize, we must also persevere in our faith. The scripture tells us this. It says we have to overcome. Um, we're, we're to work out our own salvation. In fear and trembling. Uh, Philippians 2.12 says that. But the next verse, uh, Philippians 2.13, tells us that it's God who's at work in us so that we might will and work for his good pleasure. And in that same book, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says that he is confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect it. And the word for perfect here means to make it complete, to make something complete. So those that God has begun a good work in, has he begun a good work in you? Did he begin a good work in you when he saved you for himself, when he sanctified you and set you apart? Well, if he did, then he himself is going to complete that work. He is going to complete it in you. All right, those that he's begun a good work in, the good work of salvation and sanctification, he's going to continue that work until it's complete. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast by his grace. Uh, again, it, Scripture says we've got to overcome to get the crown. But who is it that overcomes for us? Take heart. Right In the world, you'll have much trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world on our behalf. He keeps us in the faith. He preserves us by his grace. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And Paul <clears throat> has all of these different aspects of grace in mind when he prays this prayer of benediction upon the Colossians, when he says, grace be unto you. Um, and this is borne out throughout the rest of this letter. Right, All of these aspects of grace are, are in view here. Um, as a matter of fact, all these scriptures that I just listed are, are referenced from all these different books of the New Testament to support each of these categories. I could have done the same thing by pulling verses just from this book, just from Colossians. Right, It's all here, as we'll see over the coming months. All right, now, um, back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, uh, along with grace, Paul prays uh, for peace. Grace and peace. <clears throat> so grace is the first of the blessings that Paul asked from God upon the brethren at Colossae, and which again, I said, is, is, is fitting. It's appropriate that grace is first because the peace that he asked for here for the Colossians must necessarily flow from the grace, right? That he mentions first. There can be no real peace without grace, right? Uh, peace speaks of grace. It's aligned with all of these aspects of grace that we've mentioned here. To have a physical, like earthly peace, right? To not be at war in a worldly sense, to not have to hide in bunkers, or fight from trenches, or have our loved ones die in battle against an enemy. 
right? This kind of peace is a common grace kind of peace that God allows us to experience. If we live uh, lives that are characterized by this kind of peace, that's the grace of God, and we should be thankful. We should pray and be thankful for that. All right, so that's one kind of peace. Another kind of peace is to have peace with God. To have peace with God. This is the most crucial and important peace. Right? This is the peace that keeps us from wrath. This is the peace that keeps us from hell. This type of peace comes only through our union with Christ. When we accept the truth of who He is and of what His sacrifice accomplished. And when that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, is applied to us and we experience God's saving grace in Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Before we didn't have, we didn't have peace with God. Um, before we were his enemies. But Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says that uh, we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, prior, prior to that, we were, we were his enemies, enemies of God, hostile towards him. Uh, and if we had continued on in that state, we would eventually fall under his eternal wrath, right? That is the ultimate fate of all of those who remain his enemies. They don't have peace with God. They have, there's hostility and enmity between people and God before uh, they accept the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, but because of the grace of God, again, made possible by the sacrifice, by the work of our Lord Jesus at the cross, we are given peace with God. Uh, we've been freed from the penalty of sin that is our just punishment because Christ has earned that freedom and applied it to us. The penalty is paid and we are now justified in His sight. And the Scriptures tell us that we have been reconciled to Him. Reconciled to Him. He's made peace with us. And praise God, for this reconciliation, right? Thank God for this peace that we have with Him. Thank God for His grace. So, uh, we have peace with God because of His saving grace, but there is also a peace from God, a peace that comes from knowing God. It's a feeling, it's a sense, it's a state of peace that we can enjoy in our hearts and in our lives. Right, And this peace comes about through His sanctifying grace. Right, This is the peace uh, that the Bible speaks of, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace of the believer. Uh, it's the peace that comes from faith. From faith in Christ. It's the peace that comes from believing in your heart all of these things that we've been discussing today. It's the peace that comes along with a greater knowledge of God. It's the peace that comes along with knowing His nature and character of his, uh, his love and His faithfulness, right? It's the peace that comes from having walked with Him, from having walked with Him and trusted Him and having been carried and sustained through the storms and trials of life by Him. It's the peace that comes from having experienced Him. It's the peace that comes from having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's the peace that comes from recognizing His power. Right in experiencing His power in our lives. It's the peace that comes from understanding His sovereignty. Right? From truly believing, from truly believing that God has the power. The power, and He's promised us that He is using that power to work all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Right? And, and the peace that comes from knowing that He keeps His promises. If we know and believe all of these things about God, Brothers and sisters, what a peace we're going to live with, right? That unshakable peace, the peace that comes from our sure hope that we are loved in Christ and that our destiny is an eternal inheritance with Him and His kingdom. What peace that should bring. Uh, the peace that comes from knowing that every bit of suffering that we endure in this life is, is, is worth it. One day we're going to look back and say, I'd do it all again. I'd do it all ten times. Right? If, if it's going to gain for me, if it's what I have to go through to, to receive this blessed hope, to receive the prize, and we can have peace in knowing that nothing can ever take that away from us. Nothing can snatch us out of His hand. 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation. What a peace that we should have. And this is, this is the kind of peace that the world just can't understand. It's the peace that surpasses understanding. That's what it means. The world doesn't get it. Right? Uh, the world looks at, at people with this kind of peace and they, they look at you like you're crazy. Right? To endure some of the things you endure. To give in some of the ways that you give. And to love in the ways that you love. It doesn't make sense to the world. Because they don't know what we know. They don't have what we have. Um, that kind of peace comes only, comes only as the sanctifying grace of God conforms you more and more into the image of Christ. With grace comes peace. And the last part, the last part of this phrase that we're going to look at here, uh, it's back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Right? We've looked at grace, we've looked at peace, now we're going to look at from God our Father. From God our Father. And, and we've actually already covered this pretty well. Right? We understand that the grace and the peace that Paul is asking for on behalf of his readers has to come from the Father. It comes from nowhere else. You can't get it anywhere else. That's the only place, the only source. Um, but I want to take note of something else here in this place, right? in this verse. Um, there's actually there's a unique difference in Paul's usual greeting formula here that he uses in his, his other letters. And every other one of Paul's letters, every other one but Colossians, he always asks for grace and peace in the name of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the phrase. Uh, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may have noticed... Uh, if any of you are following along in, in a King James or a New King James Bible, that that part of the phrase does actually appear in this verse, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, in those translations. The King James says in this verse, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I've decided to discuss this here because I think it's important. I think it's important. It would be easy to ignore. Um, it'd be easy to just walk right past it and pretend like it's not there. And there are probably uh, folks out there who think that we should just ignore this type of thing. Right? There, there are people um, who believe that discussing the type of, of study and scholarship that can explain these discrepancies in our Bibles is just a terribly unspiritual thing to do. Okay? But I believe. I believe that I would be doing you a disservice by not discussing this, at least briefly. Okay, this, this difference between the King James Version of the Bible and the newer translations came about because of something called a textual variant. Now, don't shut down. Okay, this is not difficult. Uh, textual variant. What that means is that the ancient manuscripts that we have the ancient writings that we have dug up out of the ground or found in old monasteries or libraries across the world, uh, the ancient manuscripts, the, and these manuscripts, they're the absolute basis. They are the reason that we even have the Word of God in our hands today. It's because we can find these old copies of Scripture. Um, so these manuscripts that the Lord has been gracious to preserve for us and reveal to us and to, to, to give us godly men and women who devote their lives to understanding and gathering and translating these ancient texts from Greek and Hebrew into English so that you and I can actually have the Word of God in a language that we can read. Sometimes the different copies of these manuscripts uh, that have been preserved for us are different from one another. Sometimes they have differences in the copies that we find. But that's a textual variant. Um, the text of these different manuscripts varies. So it's a textual variant. Right? And so just be forewarned. I'm not always going to go into this kind of detail, but I will probably almost always address these textual variants when we come across them in the text. Um, you want to know why? 
Uh, well, if any one of you did happen to be following along in the King James Version or the New King James Version, which there's nothing wrong with that, those are both good translations, then you probably noticed, uh, probably noticed that your Bible reads differently than what we had on the screen. You know, it probably would have got your attention. Um, and if this is you, like, did you did you care? Right? Did it concern you in the least? Uh, did did you wonder what's going on here? Why is it different? Um. Well, the the truth is, the truth is that there are many places in the Bible where we might come across this kind of thing. Um, and I think it's worth discussing it uh, to help God's people understand why this is the case. We can understand why. Um, I actually consider it part of my job as a pastor to tell you these things. And another reason to know, besides the fact that it's going to catch your attention, that you're going to notice it, another reason is that this type of thing is used all of the time by critics and skeptics and God-hating opponents of our faith. They use it all the time to attack this holy word. Right? So you're trying to talk to someone about Jesus. You're trying to do the really spiritual and good and, and, and worthy thing and share the gospel. Right? And, and you get, well, your Bibles are all different and they're contradictory and you don't even really know what the original said. Um, you'll get the uh, whole, it's, it's like the telephone game. Right? Uh, that game where you get a bunch of people in a circle or a line, and the first one whispers uh, a message to the, the person beside them, and then they whisper to the person beside them, and it goes on down through the line, and by the time it reaches the final person, the original message has been changed. That's what they say our Bibles are like. That's what they compare our Bible to, the telephone game. Your Bible's been changed so much down through the ages that the true meaning has been lost. If you've never heard that, you probably will one day if you've ever talked to anyone about the Word, um, and especially you young people. You get out there in the world, you go to college, you're going to hear it. Well, that is a horribly inaccurate way of talking about our Bible, right? That's not actually anywhere even close to being true. It's, it's a fallacy. It's foolish. Um, as a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. And I want y'all to understand this, right? And to understand why these issues that these people bring up are actually no reason to doubt that we have God's full revelation of himself to us in our modern Bibles today, right? We have the word just as he intended it uh, because, because of scholarship, right? Scholarship doesn't belong to the devil. Scholarship belongs to God. Because all truth and knowledge and all of reality belongs to God. And we have to learn to lay claim to that as Christians. We have a reasonable faith. Our faith makes sense. It is not a blind faith. And it's not an unspiritual thing to talk about this stuff. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually it's a work of the Holy Spirit that's preserved this word and brought it down to us through the ages. It is the work of the Spirit. Men died. Men died because they believed that the translation work and scholarship that is necessary, necessary for you to have that holy word of God in your hands in a language that you can read was worth doing. Men went to the stake and were burned because they did this. And what they were doing, they, they, were, they, were, they were godly and spiritual men. They were gifts of God to his church, even though they have become in many circles sorely unappreciated uh, by many people who greatly benefit uh, from their scholarship and their sacrifice. It's a sad thing that many Christians today are completely disconnected from the work that God has done in His people throughout history. God is the God of history. He didn't just start working at the time we were born. He's been working through His people for all eternity. So, anyway, that's my little, my little screed there. Um, you want to know what's going on here, right? Why the King James reads one thing and the NASB, NIV, NLT 
uh, and so on. I'll read something different. Do you want to know? Well, too bad, because I'm going to tell you. <laughs> the earliest manuscripts, the earliest of these handwritten manuscripts and these copies that we find, um, the oldest ones, are the closest in time to the originals. Right? They're the oldest, so therefore they're the closest in time to the originals. The originals are the inspired words. Those are the words we want to know. The words that Paul wrote, the words that Peter wrote, the words that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. Right? So because the older manuscripts are closer to the originals, uh, they're considered sort of like the most useful for getting us to the original text, right? Because there's less time for errors to have crept in, okay? So if you want to think about it like the telephone game, it's not like there's like a circle or a line of 10 people and we have to rely on the 10th one to try to get the original message. It's like the 10th guy gets to get up and go ask the second guy what the original message was. You get it? So in this case, we have several good old copies of Colossians, and some of them include the phrase, and our Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 1, verse 2, and some of them don't. So we have equal amounts of old manuscripts. Some of them have it, and some of them don't. So if you're translating, if you're one of these people that's translating the NASB or the King James Version, you've got to make a decision, right? And the King James translators included that phrase because they didn't have as many ancient manuscripts available to them in 1611 when they were doing their work, right? And most of the best ones that they had access to at that time, they did have the, the phrase, the extra phrase, and our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the 400 years that have gone by since they finished their translation, we found thousands more of these ancient manuscripts uh, by the grace of God. We found thousands more, and we can see that it's just as common to leave out the phrase in this verse as it was to leave it in. Right? It's like half have it and half don't. And ultimately, ultimately the reason why basically all modern translations choose to leave it out right, is because it just makes more sense that when you have scribes copying these works down through the ages, it makes more sense to believe that one would put that phrase in to Colossians. Because after all, Paul does use it in all of his other letters. So when a scribe is copying and they come to this part in Colossians and that phrase isn't there, they think, well, this must be a mistake. He uses it in all his other letters, so they put it in. Right? Even though Paul never wrote it. Um, so it makes more sense to believe that something like that happened than it does to believe that a scribe would have come across that phrase in the verse and then taken it out. You can understand why a scribe would put it in. There's no, no reason to understand. There's no way to understand why, why a scribe would take it out. Okay? It's that simple here. Not every variant is that simple, but this one is that simple. Right, you look at the manuscripts, you see some have it, some don't. You use your common sense, and then you make a, make a decision. Right, so that's what it is. It's 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 uh, historical evidence plus common sense equals Paul probably did not put that phrase when he was writing to the Colossians. Okay, so thank you for putting up with that. Now we can move on. Um. So we may wonder why. Why did Paul not use the full phrase in this letter that he used in all of his other letters? Why did he choose to leave that out here? Um, well, if we pay attention to the context, to where this phrase is in the greeting and what's being spoken of around it, uh, Paul has just finished calling Timothy our brother, right, in verse 1. And he's called the Colossian saints faithful brethren, you remember we talked about what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ last week. So the brotherhood of all the saints is already in view here. Right? It's on Paul's mind. This idea of family, of the spiritual family is on his mind. So he chose to highlight especially and specifically the fatherhood of God. Right? That makes these things true. He's highlighting the fact that, that, that we are all brothers in Christ because we all share the same father. We all have God as our Father. And it's not like Christ is left out of his theology because Paul didn't include that, that phrase 
in his prayer. Christ is already everywhere in Paul's greeting here. He's mentioned him twice in the first two verses, and he's going to mention Christ again in verse 3 and again in verse 4. So he just leaves out this one little part of this phrase. The surrounding it is Christ, 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 brotherhood, brotherhood, God our Father. You know, we're not missing anything here. Uh, Paul has already acknowledged that this grace and peace that he's asking for, for these believers can only come through Christ. And he's going to acknowledge this over and over again throughout the rest of this letter. So again, nothing is lost um, by him not using his usual phrasing here of from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Just to tie all three of these elements together here, right? Grace and peace to you from our Father. These three things are a package deal. They're a package deal, as we've already said. You can't have peace without grace, and you can't have either without the Father. So Paul is praying, praying for an increase in these blessings, as well as reminding these Colossians of what they've already received in Christ and of the source of these blessings, giving glory to the Father. Now, that's verse 2. Done with verse 2. Now, I told you we were going to cover verses 3 and 4 today as well, and we are. But we can do it quickly. All right, we did two, two verses. It took us four Sundays to do two verses, but we'll cover the next two in a few minutes. And, and that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, so Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. We give thanks to God, praying always for you. Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving should be a hallmark in all of our prayers. Honestly, we should never utter a prayer that doesn't include thanking God for his goodness. We can always find something to thank him for. In chapter 4, verse 2 of this book, uh, Paul urges the Colossians to devote themselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So what, what kind of things do you thank God for? in your prayers. Um, do you thank God for your salvation by His grace? Of course, I hope so. Right, do you thank God for His provision of your daily bread and, and all the other physical blessings that you enjoy? All right, good. Good, you should. We all should. Um, what about when God helps you remain faithful in a trial? When God teaches you something new, when you can see your faith growing and your love and trust for him growing, do you thank him for that? All right, good. These are right and worthy things to thank him for. But let me ask you, do you ever thank God for the faith and faithfulness of others? All right, and, and not just when that faithfulness benefits you, but just in general, right? Uh, Lord, thank you for, for, for such and such faithful believer. Thank you for, for Sister Sally and the work that she's doing for you and her church and her community. Or, or Lord, thank you uh, for this faithful church in Nashville, Tennessee that's teaching your truth and making an impact in the culture for your kingdom. Right? Can we thank God for those things? What about for the love, the love of a person or a church that, that is being displayed for others? Do you thank God for the love and faithfulness of other believers, of your brothers and sisters? Right? Do you thank God when you see him raising up faithful churches in Africa or in China? Do you thank God when you hear that some great sinner has come to faith? Right, a convicted murderer who God is gracious to save, he can save them uh, and use, right, to impact the prison that he's incarcerated in with the truth of the gospel. Right, can you thank God for that? Would you include that 
in your thanksgiving to God in your prayers? Can you rejoice and thank God for the work that He's doing in the lives and ministries of other believers? Is that something we think of to do? Well, Paul did it. Paul did it. That's what he's doing here. Timothy and I have been praying for you and thanking God for you. We've been thanking God for you ever since Epaphras told us about your faith and how much you love all of the brethren. Right? When I heard those things, I was encouraged and I thank God for the work that he's doing in you. We're all on the same team, brothers and sisters. We're, we're all brethren. Um, as long as a believer or a church is seeking to be faithful to God according to the truth that he has revealed in his word, we should rejoice and thank God for them. Right, But that's the key. That's the qualifier. Uh, there are many churches out there who have abandoned the word altogether and who seek to please men rather than God. And for those churches, we should pray for them too. Right, But we should pray that God will change them that he'll grant salvation and repentance and revival and reform, right? We, we should be praying for that or else we should be uh, praying that he would close them down and lead the people to faithful churches. Um, but, but for a church that holds to Scripture as the sole infallible source of faith and practice, a church that still holds the Bible to be true and to be the standard for Christian living, uh, for those churches and those people that are believing that and teaching that, for the people that have the glory of God as, it, as their highest ideal and mission, we should give God thanks for those people. When we see him growing his kingdom and using other believers in mighty ways, when we see a ministry that God is using to bring people to faith, when we see a new believer growing in faith and turning corners and experiencing breakthroughs, thank God. Thank God. Be thankful. Church, your God is being glorified. His kingdom is growing. He's working. He's saving sinners. He's subduing his enemies and transforming them into beloved children. Just like he did with you. Just like he did with us. Praise God. Praise God. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your gracious work and reconciling the whole world to yourself. Lord, thank you, Lord for doing this for, your, for our good and for your glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, thank you. Thank you that we have so much to be thankful for. Thank you for your grace and saving us. Lord, not just saving us, but in sustaining us, giving us our daily bread, giving us good things to eat and drink and people to love, giving us Blue skies and sunshine, giving us rain when we need it. Lord, all of these things are, are gifts from you, gifts of your grace. And we thank you for them, Lord. We thank you for saving us in Christ more than, more than anything, Lord. We thank you for justifying us. We thank you for taking us while we were yet sinners, while we were your enemies, and making us your children and being gracious to us in this way. Thank you for Christ and the work that he's done. Lord, we thank you uh, for the work that you are doing in our lives. Why don't we pray that we will grow, uh, that we will grow as individuals and that we'll grow as a body in, in our faithfulness, that we'll grow in our likeness to Christ, that we'll grow in our knowledge of you, that we'll grow in wisdom and power. Lord, as we, as we come to know you better, as we walk with you, Lord, I thank you, Father, that we can trust you to keep us. Keep us in your love. Keep us covered in your Son. That you haven't left it up to us. Lord, but that you hold us tightly. We are in Jesus' hand and that no one can snatch us out. And Father, we thank you. Lord, for the work that you're doing in your faithful churches. We pray that you can help us, Lord, to have a genuine uh, sense of gratitude, Father, just to see you working in this world. Lord, that we can recognize that 
we are your children together with all other believers. Lord, that you have your people everywhere and that we all share this bond of brotherhood. Help us to be rooting, Lord, for faithful churches. Help us to be uh, eagerly seeking to see the ways that you are growing people and helping people and changing people and ministering to people and growing your kingdom. Uh, Lord, give us hearts like this, Father. Give us hearts of concern for one another, uh, hearts of concern for others, just like Paul had. Give us hearts that appreciate that appreciate you for giving us Paul, Lord, for giving us men like Paul and Timothy and Epaphras, Lord, for the, the people that you've worked in uh, over the ages, Lord, to bring us your word in a language that we can understand. Help us to appreciate your providence in history, Lord, we pray. Father, open our eyes to all your blessings and bring forth the true gratitude from us for yourself, Lord. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.